Psalm 119, and we're going to read verses 153 to 160 as we continue to finish off this psalm. A beautiful uh, reminder of the importance of the Word of God in the life of a believer. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Father, thank you for uh, now some time to gather around your word. Uh, What a joy to worship you with our hearts and our minds in song. What a joy to worship you with our hearts and minds in giving and in prayer. And now we get to worship you with our hearts and minds as we focus our attention on your word. What a gift, Father. I'm so thankful that you have wanted to make yourself known to us, that you have gone out of your way to tell us about yourself and to make it possible for us to find you. Thank you for this word, which is um, unique beyond any other book or any other word. Help us to make sense of it. We realized earlier that you are the living God, and now we recognize that this is the living word of God. Make the book live once again, I pray, this morning, to live in my heart, to live in the hearts of these, your children. Uh, And may it bear fruit um, even this afternoon and this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've looked at uh, this particular uh, verses, and just titled, and not one for sermon titles, but it's living with conviction in a cynical time. I thought it might be helpful to define conviction. By that, I don't mean living with uh, um, a conviction of the law. So that's not what I mean by conviction, which is found guilty by a criminal court. Uh, Nor do I mean living with conviction because of sin and shame in my life, although that is an appropriate use of the word of conviction. So I don't mean a legal judgment. I don't mean a conviction that we have because of sinfulness in our hearts. What I do mean is living with a strong persuasion or with strong beliefs in a cynical time. That's how I'm understanding conviction as we go through this morning. It's a strong belief or a persuasion or a conviction that we have. It's a, a, it's a, a fixed belief. As we think about convictions, just before we sort of dive into this, this text, convictions are something that shape our behavior. Ultimately, you will live out what you believe. And I, as I have often made the point here, that's why doctrine matters. It matters what you believe. It matters how you think. It matters that you get it right. Because how you think um, will affect how you live. And so it is important to talk about doctrine. It's important to wrestle through things in your mind. And so convictions shape our behavior. Convictions are rooted in the fact that that there is right or wrong, that there is good and evil, that there are truth and lies, that there is justice and injustice, that there is righteousness and unrighteousness. 
And when we think about biblical conviction, biblical convictions are tied to the fact that we believe there is a God. And we believe that this God has spoken to us. And we believe that our actions matter to him. And so convictions are things that, that we have that are formed from some of these basic beliefs. Conviction is also the background of our obedience. Our convictions determine our morality and our behavior, as I've already said. The trouble is we seem to be living in times with fewer and fewer convictions. And in part, that's because of cynicism. There is just a world of, of, of cynicism out there. Uh, sometimes it, it's expressed through mockery and disdain and indifference as, as people look at uh, matters of truth and matters of belief and they, they mock those sorts of things. A cynic sometimes can't imagine anyone that might want to try and live by moral principles and they would say, well, that's simply a waste of time because often a cynic wouldn't believe that there is a God. A cynic has a hard time believing that anyone can ever be motivated by moral principles outside of themselves or higher than themselves. And often cynics are motivated by by convictions uh, uh, that are, if they have convictions, that are generated by self-interest and by self-indulgence. In other words, what's in this for me? Cynicism also flourishes in a culture of despair and hopelessness. You find that uh, cynics and cynicism is fueled by our political system. Uh, it's fueled by our judicial system. And it's even fueled by the religious systems around us. And not only do we doubt, and sometimes often with good reason, the motives of our politicians and judges and church leaders, but we despair sometimes thinking that we can ever make a difference. And so cynicism is sometimes rooted in mistrust. We just don't trust anything or anyone or what anyone says. And so it's no wonder that this notion of conviction and this strong belief is beaten down in the world in which we live. Why stand for anything if it doesn't matter? Why stand for anything if it doesn't make a difference? Why stand for anything if in the end it's every man or every woman for themselves? Why stand for anything if there's no objective truth? After all, it's just your opinion versus my opinion, so why don't we all just do what is right in our own eyes? Cynicism would argue that truth doesn't matter. Conviction would argue truth matters. Cynicism would would say that everyone is only concerned about themselves. Conviction would say that I am concerned about others. Cynicism lives for the moment. Conviction lives with eternity in mind. And as the psalmist begins to unpack this notion of, of, of conviction, he does it with, with a single statement in verse 160, which is the basis of all his other convictions. And it's a comprehensive conviction. Read verse 160 again with me. It says there, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Another translation says, All of your words are true. All of your just laws will stand forever. In other words, what he's saying is that is the basis of all my other convictions. My root conviction, my base conviction, the comprehensive conviction which forms every other conviction that I have is that your word is true and that it endures forever. It's an amazing statement that, that he's making about the word of God. And, and, and he's saying that all of your words are true. It's fascinating to me. We, we sang a number of songs that spoke about special or general revelation this morning. 
These are songs that refer to the way that God has revealed himself in nature. I sing the mighty power of God that makes the oceans do their thing and makes the mountains rise and it makes the the flowers bud. That is revelation. Uh, the, The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul in Romans would tell us that, that, that um, uh, the, the heavens around us display the invisible attributes of God. So that, beloved, is general revelation. God has revealed himself in the world around us. He has revealed parts of his character, parts of his power, parts of his glory, parts of his creativity. All of that is revealed in creation around us. So that's what we mean when we talk about general revelation. But God has also revealed himself in what we would call special revelation. And that is in the word of God. And, and special revelation is absolutely critical for us to know how to please God. For us to know where it is that we've gone wrong. For us to know about Christ. And special revelation is God speaking to us. Special, special revelation is God saying, I want to be known by you. And so, for instance, you read in the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and, and ten times in that chapter, it says, God said, and God said, and God said. And for thousands more times throughout the rest of Revelation, then, we realize that God has spoken. And so, the psalmist is referencing the fact that God has revealed himself in this special way when he says, all of your words are true um, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And the first thing he's saying about that is it's this conviction that he has about the quality or the character or the comprehensiveness of God's word. In other words, we can't just believe some of it. it it's not that you can, you can sort of say, well, you know, I, I like most of what it says in Genesis, but Leviticus I don't like. Um, Job, I can handle some of Job, but not the last part of Job. Uh, I, I like Matthew's gospel, but I don't like Mark's gospel. You can't have some and not all of it. And so the psalmist's conviction is rooted in his conviction that all of the word of God is true. Either we believe all of it, or we really can say we don't believe any of it, because it comes together as a package. As Paul would later say in, in the New Testament, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And then he talks about the ways that it profits us. So that's the first thing he says. It's this, it's this statement about its character and its comprehensiveness. The second thing that he says is, is, is a consequence of the first. And that's that God's word is eternal and unchanging. In other words, the rules don't change. What God said to Adam and Eve is what God says to us today. And what he will say if he tarries to the next generation that comes 100 and 200 and 300 years after me. There, there, there are no changes to this word. There will be no additions. There will be no subtractions. God's word is sure and settled. It's eternal and it's everlasting. And so this is what forms and shapes the most important conviction of all. It's the starting point of all convictions that we have. It's the base upon which all other convictions flow from is this conviction that all of God's word is true. And when we have that, then, it will determine our convictions about sexual relationships and sexual activity. 
It will determine our convictions about relationships with other people. It will determine our convictions about work and about money, about how we should work, about what kind of work we should do, about our money, how we spend it, how we save it, how we give it. It will determine our attitudes toward worship and leisure. It will shape our response to government and to bureaucracy. That one conviction will shape every other conviction that you will form and have in your life. And so... This, this, this conviction that he has in, in verse 160 is a critical conviction in the Christian life. Do you believe that God has spoken? Do you, do you believe that God has spoken without error? Do you believe that God's words are, are eternal and, and that they will not change? Have you learned this to be true in the, in, for yourself? Have you learned how utterly trustworthy God's word is when everything and everyone around you proves false and is untrustworthy? Charles Spurgeon wrote, The ungodly are false, but God's word is true. God's word has been true from the first moment in which it was spoken, true throughout the whole of history, true to us from the instant in which we believed it, true to us before we were true to it. The scriptures are as true in Genesis as in Revelation. And in the five books of Moses are as inspired as the four Gospels. Neither in the book of Revelation nor of Providence will there be any need to put a single note or etc. The Lord has nothing to regret or retract, nothing to amend or reverse. The Bible has not and will not change. It has proven true to men and women throughout history. If you turn from the word of God, you do not turn to something more truthful. You turn to lies. This is our fixed reference point. This is the starting place of all our convictions. But when we start there, then we realize that immediately we are in for some some difficulty. Because this may be our profession, but does it work itself out in the practice of our lives? In other words, I would dare say that the vast majority of us here this morning would say, yes, I believe that with all of my heart. I believe the sum of all God's word is true and that they are eternal and that they are everlasting. Yes, I believe that. But then we go out into the world, we go out into our office places, we go out into our coffee shops, we go out into our schools, and we all of a sudden realize that what we believed in church and the conviction that we had in church is a lot more difficult to hold in practice when we get out in the real world. And I think Jesus was aware of that, this this tie between conviction and, and obedience, when at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's version, He addressed many of them who were following him based on a verbal profession. And they called him Lord, which is a good thing to call Jesus. And that meant that they were calling him their their master. And they were putting themselves forward as his servants. But they were also disregarding his teaching. And Jesus showed how impossible it was to have this, to have a, a, a profession on one hand and then a way of life that contradicted it on the other hand. And he said to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's, that's a, that, that should hit us between the eyes. He, obviously, he was saying that, that he is not our Lord if we don't obey him. And if he is not our Lord, then, then we don't belong to him. We are like those whose houses are swept away by the flood. And I am convinced that it is a lack of conviction that God has spoken That is the root of all our problems of obedience. We profess one thing, but when the rubber hits the road in life, we we practice another thing. And our practice betrays our profession. 
Ezekiel was asked to speak to Israel on God's behalf, and this is what God asked him to say. As for you, son of men, man, your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. In other words, this Ezekiel guy, he's a good prophet. He has lots of things to say from God. My people come to you as they usually do. They sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Jerusalem was destroyed and Israel was punished because they lacked the conviction that God had spoken. They played games with the truth. And it's not just something that the Old Testament addresses. You go to the New Testament and James says the same thing. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like the man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law gives freedom. And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. So then, how do we take this conviction that we have, and what are the implications of taking this profession that all of God's word is true and it lasts forever, and putting it into the practice of our lives? Well, the first thing I think that the psalmist reveals to us is that there is often a cost that comes with our convictions. There is a cost that comes from our convictions. If you embrace convictions rooted in the eternal, unchanging word of God, there will come a time when each of those convictions will be tested and challenged, and to stand for that conviction will come with a price. It may be an economic price. It may be that you have a a business decision to make this week, and you have a conviction that 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 you should be truthful in all your dealings, but all of a sudden... In order for this business deal to go forth, you've got to fudge the truth a little bit. You've got to fudge the books a little bit. Your conviction conviction will be tested. It's an economic cost. For some, it might be a relational conviction. You might be, you might be involved with, with somebody and they're, they're beginning to push boundaries with you. And your conviction says, those are boundaries that I cannot and will not cross. And you either have to give up that relationship with that individual or give up your conviction. That conviction comes with a cost. It might be a spiritual um, uh, a cost that comes with your conviction. Almost every single conviction that I know potentially has a cost to equal it. The strength of a test will reveal the strength of your conviction. Again, I've pointed out a lot of these uh, examples. It might be a conviction about premarital sex. You might be in a relationship with somebody you've always said, I will not... I I will not cross this boundary. I will not let go of something that God tells me not to let go of until I'm married. And then you get into a relational situation. You get into a, a difficult situation and you have to say, does my conviction matter? Or you are going to school and there's a big test coming up. And all of a sudden you're, you're faced with the fact that there's, there, there's an answer sheet floating around. And you know that everyone else is going to have a look at that answer sheet. And they're going to do well on the test. And even though you've studied, you know it's going to be a hard test. And you've got a conviction that says, I will not cheat. And so you're confronted with that conviction. And there's a cost to pay. It might be you lose a few marks because you don't know all the answers to the test. 
I mean, these are obvious examples of the ways in which our convictions are tested. But they could be tested with faithfulness to your spouse. They could be tested with giving to the church. You know, I I know that I should, uh, God has told me to set aside this amount of money to give to the Lord when I go to church today. Or when I go to church at the end of the week. And then all of a sudden something comes up in your house and there's something that you want to do or something that you want to get or something breaks down and all of a sudden you say, oh, well, I know I've got this money set aside for God and I know the Spirit of God said I should give it, but... And you're, you're tempted about your conviction of whether or not you should follow through with what God has spoken to you. It could be about lying. It could be about hypocrisy. It could be about bending a rule here. It could be about a regulation that you think is a silly regulation, but somebody in authority has established that regulation, and you say, well, no, that doesn't really fit for me, or that's a dumb one, so I'm going to break the law to suit my purposes. So our convictions are tested every day in little ways and in big ways. And the psalmist here is alluding to the fact that there can be a great cost to our convictions. Look at verse 153. He says, look on my affliction and rescue me. I think what he's saying there is I'm suffering, God. Because I'm being a a man of your word. I'm being a man who stands by what you say, and I'm in trouble. I'm I'm facing a, a battering because of it. Will you come and will you rescue me? Or look at verse 154. Defend my cause and redeem me. In other words, I'm feeling backed in a corner. I'm feeling the only one who's standing on this truth. I'm out here by myself. There's nobody else that is standing with me. I'm all alone. But God, would you defend my cause? Or verse 157. Many are my foes who persecute me. I'm, I'm standing for your truth, Lord, in in the coffee room at my work, but it's becoming lonely because I'm getting attacked every night that I come to work. Or God, I am am saying no to what my boss is asking me to do, but he's putting more and more and more pressure on me, and I don't know if I can withhold it for another week. And so he's saying, Lord, many are the foes who persecute me. He's recognizing that if you, if you have convictions that are rooted in the internal, unre- unchanging word of God, there will be a cost to pay for those convictions. But I, 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 I so appreciate his resolve. Look at verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me, but I do not forget your law. As long as it takes, no matter what happens, I still will not forget your law. Or look at verse um, uh, 159, where there he says, Consider how I love your precepts, O Lord. It doesn't matter what I'm going through. It doesn't matter how I'm suffering. It doesn't matter how I'm backed into the corner. I still love your law, O God. Or, or what about 154? Um, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. In other words, I know that, I, that, that there's only meaningful life when I stand on your word and when I stand for your truth. One person wrote, Open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands. But profession without practice slays its tens of thousands. So we have not only the cost of our convictions if we practice them, but there's a clash of our convictions. The the truth is, not everyone will share your conviction. You know that. I mean, you can, I can bring up any number of ethical situations and, and, and I can say, okay, you go bring this up at your coffee time at work or, 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 or you bring this up on, on the golf course this week and I can guarantee you there's going to be a clash of convictions because we hold contrary beliefs 
strongly. Um, and the psalmist understands this. He understands that, that not everyone will hold to the same truth that he holds to. Not everyone will share his conviction about the word of God and the fact that it is the sum of all truth. And so when convictions clash, somebody loses. There's, there's, there's pain there. And notice, he, he mentions three different kinds of people here. The first in 155. He says, salvation is far from the wicked. Wicked, you know, we, we think of wicked and sometimes we, we think of um, really, really evil, evil, bad people. That's not always what the Bible means when it uses the word wicked. And, and I think this is one of those cases where, where I think um, what, what he means by wicked are simply those who don't give any weight to God's word. They don't share the same conviction that you might have in God's word. It doesn't mean anything to them. In other words, a wicked person is one who, who, who is in opposition to one who does right according to God's word. They simply don't know or they don't care. Their thoughts and their words and their deeds display a rejection of truth. They are a law unto themselves. Now you know, if you are talking, you who believe in God's word being the sum of all truth and eternal, and you're talking with someone who doesn't believe that, and you bring up, uh, I won't bring, uh, you bring up a particular topic, you're going to clash. There's going to be difference of opinion on that. Or he goes on and he talks about the foes. Many are the foes who persecute me. Foes are, are those that are offended by the convictions of others. They oppose us for keeping God's word. Or in verse 158, they're the faithless ones. And by, by this, by, by the faithless, what he's talking about those are, are those who don't honor their convictions. Those who say one thing at this point and then do something else at this point. And, and the faithless people are sometimes the, the, the greatest foe to our convictions. Because you might go with a group of people and you say, yeah, we all share this conviction. And then you get into a certain situation and all of a sudden you're the only one that's standing there holding on to that conviction any longer. Because everyone else has abandoned it. And so when you get in, in contrast with those who say one thing and then do another, there's going to be a clash sometimes in our convictions. This is when the rubber meets the road. This is when what you believe about money, what you believe about business, what you believe about relationships, what you believe about God, what, what you believe about doctrine, this is when it hits the road of life. But, but I, I like what he also says. He, he, he does say, you know, this is my comprehensive conviction in the word of God. I realize there is a cost to convictions. I realize that there are going to be times when my convictions clash with other people. But I, I want you to know what is the confidence of his conviction. And it comes out in a, in a few different ways because even though um, he, nobody else might be aware of his convictions, nobody else might care, he knows that God cares. Does it matter what we believe, does it matter how we live? Absolutely, it does. I've used this story so many times, but it's one that so illustrates the, the truth for me of, of, of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was a young man who was um, sold into slavery. He was bought by a man named uh, Potiphar. He was raised up to, to a great position of authority in Potiphar's home. He was a good-looking man. In fact, the Bible said he was very, very handsome. And Potiphar's wife had a thing for him. And the Bible tells us that day after day after day, she went for him and said, will you sleep with me? And day after day after day, he said no. 
Finally, one day, Potiphar's wife arranged to have all the servants out of the house, arranged to have nobody around, and Joseph came to do the stuff that he normally does to look after the house, and all of a sudden, she makes the same request upon him. And his response to her is a response that I think that we should all have. He says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? In other words, he had this, not only did he have these convictions that, that to sleep with another man's wife was a sin, but he had this conviction that God watched him and that God saw him and that God knew what he was doing in his life. Again, in the context of prayer, Jesus says to his disciples, when you pray, in contrast to the Pharisees, Go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, God has his eyes upon you, beloved. God knows when you are fighting for your convictions. God knows when you're the last man or woman standing. God knows when you're, when you're up against the wall in the various settings that you might be standing for your convictions. God sees you, God knows, and he will never let you endure more than you are able to endure. And so his confidence in, the confidence of his conviction is that God sees and acts. Look at verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me. In other words, God, he says, God, you see me. And God, would you deliver me? Would you rescue me? Would you get me out of this situation? I, I am so encouraged by this, loved ones, that God is not unaware of what I fight for and what I believe in and what I live for in my life. I was thinking of this in relation to the Hebrew midwives in, in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, and when the, when the people of Israel uh, were in, in the land of Egypt and the first Pharaoh had died, and it says another Pharaoh came along who did not know the God of Israel, all of a sudden he began to make them work really, really hard, and they began to just grow and, and, and multiply. And there was, there was just he, Hebrews everywhere. And so Pharaoh said to the Hebrew midwives, you need to kill every boy that's born. They wouldn't do that. They had a conviction that that was wrong before God. And so they rescued and they, and they made up excuses of why they couldn't get there in time to kill all the Hebrew boys. And it said, and God rewarded them because they feared him. And God rewarded them with a family. Interesting, Pharaoh asked them to destroy family and God rewarded them with family. But they lived their life based on conviction. And so, loved ones, I, I want you to know, yes, Living with conviction is tough. Yes, living with conviction will be costly at times. Yes, living with convictions will mean that you will clash with other people from time to time. But have this confidence that God sees every situation you're in. He sees your school classroom. He sees your work lunchroom. He sees that office boardroom. He sees that neighborhood discussion that's going on. And he can deliver you from those situations. That was the psalmist's conviction. The second confidence that he has is the conviction that God cares and delivers. Verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. In other words, God will never leave us in a lurch. He will never leave us to defend ourselves. Everybody else may scatter. Everybody else may leave, but God will never leave us or forsake us. It might be lonely, and you might feel alone, and you might take a lot of heat because you stand on God's word, but know that God cares about you, and that God can and will deliver you. If God is for us, who can stand against us? If you stand for him, he will stand for you. And then the third conviction that he has is 
is, is in 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me loving ki- or give me life according to your rules. I love that. It's the conviction that God is merciful, that God loves us. Great are your mercies, O God. God is rich in mercy. Isn't that one of the most wonderful things? Again, God will never put you in a situation that he will not give you the ability to stand in that situation. We just have to trust him. We just have to depend on him. He is a merciful God. He is a gracious gracious God. And as as it goes on to say in 159, he says, "Um, Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. That's the character of God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. He treats us according to his loving kindness. His loving kindness takes into effect our frailty and our weaknesses. His mercy will limit our suffering to what we are able to endure and will bring it to an end for his glory and for our healthiness. He does and will do more for us than we can ever ask or imagine. As we end, I just wanted to say just one one connection here between salvation and the word of God. I think it's important to, to just to, to say something about this. How is it that we get into a relationship with God where we can begin to have such great convictions? And it's because we come to know God through Jesus Christ. This verse where in verse 50, 155, he says, Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. It just, one of the, and there's so much in that verse that, that I think is helpful, but the first thing is he just mentions this fact that salvation is an issue. That there is something to salvation. That there is something that we need. There is something that, that God says uh, he will provide for us. In another place in the Bible, it says there is salvation for, for in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by given to men whereby which we must be saved. Salvation is a very real issue. And it's talking about a, a separation that is between us and God and this separation that makes, it, makes us want to run from God and makes us want to deny God and makes us want to try and live on our own strength and makes us want to live on our, without conviction even sometimes. And so the psalmist recognizes that salvation is a very real issue here. But he, he, he makes some implication there where he says, salvation is far from the wicked for they do not seek your statutes. I think what that's saying is that God has made salvation known to us. That we don't have to live in rebellion from God. We don't have to live in conflict with what his word says. That his word has revealed to us the way of life and the way of salvation. That in his word, he tells us about ourselves. In his word, he tells us about how we strayed from him. But in his word, he tells us what he has done to draw near to us and to come to us in order that we might be in a relationship with him and live according to our convictions. And he's done that through Jesus Christ. There's something exclusive about salvation, is there not? As the writer in Acts says, there is salvation in no one else. Under There is no name given under heaven by which we must be saved except through Jesus Christ. It's important that we understand, too, that this isn't just a a game. It's not something that we can take or leave. Notice what the writer says, by which we must be saved. 
See, if we want to enter into a relationship with God, if we want to become men and women that are sons and daughters of God, if we want to be those who, who increasingly live by these convictions and live with the help of God and live to the glory of God, we can only do it by being in a right relationship with God through Christ. We must be saved. And so as you think about this this morning, you know, maybe you're certainly one of God's children and, and you've been wrestling with conviction this last week and it's just an affirmation that you need to have this morning that uh, as you head into this week to once again be firm in your convictions and say, God, I, I will stick with you no matter what. I believe your word is true and I believe it's true even when it's not easy for me to follow it and even when there's a price to pay, but I will live for you this week. And maybe there's some here that just want to say, I, I just don't even know what it means to have a relationship with God. Well, you can through Jesus Christ. You can come to know this God that we've been singing about and this God that we've been talking about, this God that is behind this word. You can come to know him if you want to seek him in his word. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ is your savior, you don't know what it is to know God, come and talk with me, come and talk with Sean. Talk to the person beside you, in front of you, and just say, you know, I don't have convictions. I don't know what you guys believe and this salvation stuff and this Jesus Christ, I, I don't know much about him. Can you tell me a little bit about him? I'll guarantee you that anybody you ask here will say, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what I know about Jesus. I'll tell you what he's done for me.